Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Now let's get down to uh, business because uh, time is always of the element and my problem is always having too much, not too little to say. <laughs> so as you can see, I uh, thought of the title, um, Murdering Jews for Something You Didn't Do, because that's what this boils down to. And it's chimerical Christian fantasies and their lethal results in Jewish history. So I think the title uh, <laughs> describes what I'm going to be speaking about in general terms. And uh, in specifics, as you'll see, I'm going to be focusing this three weeks on a particular tragic aspect of Jewish history, because that's what I do in the summers, as you know. And we've gone through in the past some of the biggies, the Crusades and the Inquisition and all that sort of thing, the, the Tisha B'Av originally with the Romans. And now I'm going to be talking about the appearance and the reappearance of the blood libel and of the host desecration. Uh, from the Middle Ages down till today. And here we deal with something a little more disturbing because if I talked about the Spanish Inquisition, it happened 500 years ago. If I talked about the Crusades, they're not doing that anymore. It happened 1,000 years ago. Right? But if I talk about the blood libel, that Jews kill Christians because they want to squeeze blood out of the body and use them in making a matzah, that's what we're talking about. This is not a thousand years ago, this is today. I'm sorry to say this, but I have repeated many times that what, what you possibly may regard in your rational arrogance as things that are obviously true and obviously not true, evidence-based, is not representative of what the majority of the human race feels. Around the world, today, and you know this sadly, if you ask most people who did 9-11, I've said many times, it was Israel. Okay? Now don't tell me how can people say, face facts. If you go in the third world, if you go in, uh, in Africa, Latin America, and Asia, and all the rest of it, tens of hundreds of millions of people, in fact, the numbers are astonishing. It was Israel in some form or another. The Mossad did it, this one did it, that one did it. Um, it's, it's a hundred variations of this. These are the things we don't like to visit on the websites, you know, to make you feel bad. And similarly, I'm sorry to say, if you ask most people alive today, did the Jews practice the blood libel? The answer is yes. You say, how can you do it? How can you say a thing like that? I don't care. We have not, we're not talking over here about, you know, evidence-based facts. We're talking about what most people believe. And it's a sad fact around the world, among Christians and Muslims, um, they believe it in, in, in one sense or another, including educated people and people uh, you know, have access to records and all that sort of thing, including historians. I'll even go so far as to say something that I myself don't understand. There was a Jewish historian a couple of years ago, Professor Toaf in Barilan. It's a religious university. It's a guy with a kippah who posted a book, for which he got in a lot of trouble, deservedly so, in which he makes the argument, it's, it's in Italian, he makes the argument, 
it wasn't the Italian Jews that did that sort of thing. It was those Ashkenazi Jews that moved to Italy in the 1300s or whatever. They brought their barbaric customs. They're the ones who do the blood libel. Can you believe this? I'll say it again. And this guy is a kippah, and his father was the chief rabbi of Rome, and so on and so forth. He lives in Israel. And he was not fired by Barlan University. And so the crazy perceptions uh, of these are, are striking and very disturbing. That is exactly why I'm doing this during the three weeks. Um, I titled the series uh, Chimerical Christian Fantasies and Their Lethal Results in Jewish History for a reason. Um, one of the most perceptive and interesting people in the 20th century who studied scientifically and historically the phenomenon of anti-Semitism was a Canadian professor who was not Jewish named Gavin Langmuir and, uh, in, in uh, McGill or someplace like that in Canada. Uh, you can tell by his name he's not Jewish at all. And just as an historian, the notion of anti-Semitism kind of grabbed his attention because it appears and reappears all the time. And it turns out today, and again, I'm sorry to say this, that it's a force of history. Understand? It, 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 it's, a, it, it's part of the human condition, which makes it very Talmudic, because in the Talmud they say, oh, it'll never go away, Aesop, Sonaliyakov. What I just said has been rejected by modern Jews for the last 200 years, and is the cause, that rejection is the cause of the rise of all the different forms of Judaism, including exiting from Judaism, um, socialist, Zionist, reform, and every other ism that I can think of offhand. These were all attempts of the Jews in the last 200 years to create the conditions in which one day there'll be no anti-Semitism. So, to put it in simple terms, the socialist Jew was convinced in a socialist world, when things will be organized correctly, and Marx and others teach us that all bad things come from economic maldistribution, once we solve that problem, there'll be no more anti-Semitism. Reformed Jews 200 years ago in Germany were convinced it's those orthos that cause all the trouble. They look funny, they talk funny, they smell funny, but if Jews will be this and this type, if we will reform the synagogue service, and uh, eliminate Yiddish and replace it with German and things of that line, both in Germany and the United States of America, there'll be no more anti-Semitism. <coughs> Theodor Herzl um, and, and his followers said, if there will be a state of Israel, especially a strong and prosperous one, there will be no more anti-Semitism. Ha. Huh. Okay? And across the board, there are many other isms and forms. There are those who said, that if we convert and leave Judaism, at least for us, this will end anti-Semitism. That didn't work in Hitler's time, as you know. So one has to go through a great deal of uh, personal reorganization to try, you know, to, try to uh, uh, at least live personally in a world in which we need no more anti-Semitism. Instead, I'm sorry to say, it's a fact of, of life. It's a phenomenon. There's a, this scientific fact and that scientific fact. And one of them is, get used to it, it's going to be anti-Semitism. There are many people who said, well, if Israel's not going to solve anti-Semitism, I'm not interested in Israel. And that's why many Jews today are abandoning any interest and support for Israel. Because I thought the deal was, we're going to get something out of it. But since it's aggravating the anti-Semitism, 
so it doesn't interest me anymore, and so on and so forth. So these are disturbing and sort of somewhat countercultural observations, but they're true. In studying this phenomenon, Gavin Langner has a very interesting book that's called uh, Towards a Definition of Anti-Semitism, 1990. If anybody's interested in, in following, I'd recommend it. If you really want to go into a factual, shall I say, unbiased historical presentation of the subject, in which he attacks the Jewish historians for being, being too pro-Jewish, he attacks the non-Jewish historians for being too, too gullible uh, in, in, in their way. It's a very interesting book. So he talks about the fact that anti-Semitism phenomenon has expressed itself in a number of different ways. For example, there's religious anti-Semitism, obviously. You might even break it up. Christian anti-Semitism, which has a certain form. Islamic anti-Semitism, oh my God, we know about that. That has a certain form. There's economic anti-Semitism. The Jews own everything. Right? And among the different types is what he was fascinated by as a non-Jewish historian chimerical anti-Semitism, and that means, like a chimera, it's the attribution to a group of behavior that has never actually been seen. You see, if you tell me, this guy is Jewish and he robbed me, so all the Jews are crooks. And that lady cheated me, so all the Jews are cheaters. So that's a certain type of anti-Semitism, because you're ascribing to the group what one did. After all, you don't say, one American she didn't mean different. All Americans are crooks. But when it comes to Jews, you do that. That's, a, that's one type of anti-Semitism. And I can understand, you know, we understand that sort of business. But what if you attribute to the Jews something that has never, ever happened? I don't need to tell this audience, no Jew has ever tried or has ever been interested in killing somebody for the blood for the monsters. That's crazy. They're not part of Judaism at all. It's, it's a fantasy. And yet... It's had attraction that's remarkable, and is, as I say, around the world. And there are TV shows and miniseries that flourish in the third world around this thing. If you really care to, you can go on YouTube and see it yourself, if, if you want to get good and depressed. Uh, there are endless books that publish about this all the time. I'll show you one in, in, in a second. Um, it's hot in the Islamic world. Right? And it's lukewarm in the Christian world. It's not cold. And where do you get it from? No, something that never happened, but picked up a life of its own. And so as a, as a historian, a non Jew, he's just fascinated by this phenomenon. You see? So I'm going to um, be attacking this this year in my way, which is historically, and always making the argument, if you look at the past and how developed, you get an idea of what you're talking about. It's not a pretty picture what I'm going to get into, but it's something that we as sober people should be aware of. At least that's the argument of this uh, series. Uh, the, the, this past week, by the way, uh, the Arabs accused us of killing the Palestinian boy for blood for the matzahs. Okay, go to the next uh, piece. If you read this, right, you'll see, I don't have the thing to read, but the, look at this. The settlers used the body of a 17-year-old Mohammed Ibn Qadir uh, torturing him and burning him to death in a crime uh, reminiscent of their holy matzahs that became part of the history of betrayal and murder. Uh, what does it say? I can't read all. The, the blood grew among the Jews extends in there today. Holy matzahs means those matzahs mixed with human blood, blood of Gentiles. And this is a speech from some uh, big Arab cleric over there. According to historical accounts, look at this, they used the historic voice. Uh, they used to murder Christians, preferably children under 10, collect their blood and they hand it over 
So they'll be using their mouths as like, this is on the, uh, on the YouTube, this is on the, uh, you know, on, on the internet, okay? And it's today. And if you care to, you, know, you can look it up yourself. And as you look at it, you say, oh my God, what's the guy talking about? You know, I don't need to tell you that this is gobbled up by millions of readers and viewers in the Arab world, in the Muslim world, and the Muslim world is a lot more than the Arab world. I'll give you an example. Indonesia, uh, Malaysia, a place like this, hundreds of millions of them. And it's, oh yeah, what are they, you know, the Jews they eat, you know, eat kids from monsters or something like that. You see? And so, uh, it's not something from the distant past. Um, in this series, as I say, I'll be dealing with the fantasy that captured the imagination of medieval Christianity and a little bit later. So that to do this, we have to consider the matter of the role of blood in religion. It's clear that ancient man was fascinated by blood, seeing it in the life source. Okay? You know, long, long ago, people say you kill somebody or something, the blood comes out. Like, what is that? And it's not Harvey or something like that, but circulation of blood. And so they saw this as containing the life force. Even the Torah says, Adam ho nefesh. Whatever it means, right? And therefore, you have the heavy role of blood in, in religion and atavistically, including the eating of it and the bathing of it in it in pagan ceremonies around the world. Okay? Blood is not just another thing. If I wanted to, I just didn't feel like it. I could show you a movie I saw, I think you put it from Haiti when they had the revolution in, you know, in, in, in the time of Toussaint Louverture. They fought the French in around 1790, 1800. And you see their ceremony is they. They, they kill a, a goat or a cow or something. Everybody has to drink the hot blood and all this. It's obviously some African, you know, minhug that they brought with them to Haiti. But, it's, it, you know, you used to have it in all the different uh, cults and religions around the world. And as I say before, man is, is fascinating. It's red. It's, it's flowing. It, you, know, you, you see what I'm getting at. The Torah famously opposes this, as we know. Can't eat it. Uh, can't eat next to it. No silko aladam. Can't eat food until it's thoroughly salted, as, as you and I know. Blood does play a certain role in carbonus, in sacrifice in the temple. But the blood is tossed and not ingested, correct? So what we call zrika sadam. You throw the blood against the altar. Um, blood is used in purification rituals, like for leprosy. So there is a certain amount, but never the eating and bathing it and all that sort of thing. Christianity arose as a syncretistic combination of three elements. The late Hellenistic religious notions, ancient Egyptian religious notions, and the Judaism of the Septuagint, which means the Judaism that was apprehended by people based on the Bible that they heard and read, which in the ancient world was in Greek. It's what they call the, 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 the Septuagint. Now, uh, you understand what I'm saying? The average person out there to the degree that they heard anything about Judaism, they didn't study the Gemara and all that, but they've been around. And so what did they know about the Bible? And they couldn't read Hebrew, but everybody can understand Greek in one form or another. So this is the exposure that they, that they have to it. Um, I've spoken before, and I will now, about the fact that if you know anything about it, I, I have to go back into the origins of Christianity in order to explain where I'm going to be going with this in this series. Um, long ago, you used to have the world of Greece, Athens, Sparta, Corinth, when they were city-states, and they developed their own cultures and religions. And then historically, an interesting thing happened, which was that the Greek culture 
uh, was taken over by the conqueror, Alexander of Macedon, he wasn't Greek. And he went on, as we all know, to conquer the world, or be the Persian Empire at that time. But what happened was he died right away after he finished conquering it. And in the aftermath, the Greek religion um, became, it went through a very interesting process of uh, trying to uh, exist at the same time as the, all the other religions within the old Persian Empire did. And the result was what we call the Hellenistic era, which is opposed, but historians use that term to, to distinguish it between the classic age of Greece, it was classic uh, Greek history, Hellenistic era. And this was a period in which huge territories like Persia and Syria and Israel and Egypt and elsewhere were ruled by Greek, Hellenistic rulers, known as the Macedonian dynasties, who imported the Greek religion. But the Greek religion doesn't quite work with the Egyptian religion, you see? To give you an example, the Greeks worshipped people, statues of people. The Egyptians had statues of, of uh, people, but also of animals, which the Greeks couldn't understand, you see? And in Babylonia, they had their way, and in Persia, they had their way, and oh my God, when they ran into the Jewish religion, they definitely didn't know what to do with it. Right, this, is, this is what, and the result was a crisis of, uh, of Hellenism, which lasted for a couple centuries, and uh, involved Hellenism, classic Hellenism, going into decline, and eventually it's displaced and replaced by other things. And um, this wasn't something that happened overnight, but it certainly did happen over time. And uh, therefore, you don't see creativity, historians will tell you, in the Hellenistic era, the way you saw in the classic age of Greece. It's just it's repetitive, you understand? The, in the classic era, they, they wrote the plays and they made the statues and the architecture, and then they just constantly redo it. So it's like there's no new music, everybody's just redoing Beethoven all the time. And uh, that's a sign, by the way, of, of a cultural stagnation, isn't it? We have nothing new, but we have creativity. Now, um, when all this was happening, so the result was that, um, let me put this, the result was that the Greek uh, and the Egyptian religions came together in weird ways. Nobody's in charge, it's just the way it happened. And I have, as you can see up here, a passage from uh, uh, one of my favorite books, uh, Norman Bennett, which is an old classic of the Hellenism and, and Judaism. And I want to read you a, a passage over here to understand what's going on at that time. You can look up on the screen and see it. And he's talking about the fact of what I just told you. You had the Greek culture on the one hand, and then you had the local cultures on the other. From the fusion of Eastern ideas with the old Hellenic material known Orphism, all kinds of strange cults arose. And that's what happens when religion falls down. It's not replaced by atheism, but by cults. You see, atheism only works if you're a rich doctor, <laughs> a rich lawyer. So you have Olam Haseh. Okay? So you're here for 60, 70, 80 years, you have your vacations, all the rest of it, and then you die, kick the bucket, and it's over. So I had a good round. But 99% of the human race is not rich. 99% of the human race all around the world lives in terrible conditions. And so they have to believe there's something better elsewhere. They'll never go for atheism. Because you tell somebody, you're living in a third world village, and you'll never have access even to clean water, you'll be dead by the time you're 30, and your kids will have uh, various diseases, and that's just the way it is. There's no God, you, you just have a bad luck. They can't, they can't handle that. And so the collapse of religion in the Greek sense, or in any sense, is always followed by extreme religious phenomena, which you and I call cults. 
And so he says all kinds of strange cults arose, ranging from the monastic spirituality of the Neo-Pythagorean Brotherhood to the wildest sensualities of the votaries of, of Bacchus and Isis. In other words, from monks and nuns who totally renounced the world, that's one way of dealing with it, and you're going to see where all this ends up in Christianity, but originally it's the Neo-Pythagoreans among the Greeks. One way of dealing with the fact that the world stinks is to renounce the world and become a monk. At least your Daladamas is good. To the opposite extreme, the wildest sensualities of the Bacchanalians and the Isis freaks, who say like this, get all the pleasure you can know them up on those, life should be one continuous party and orgy. And then you die anyway, so what the heck? Okay? Men sought desperately for some union with the divine power, either through ecstasy, which means the release of the soul from the body, and so you do all kinds of you know, things to exit, right, to go, or through enthusiasm, enthusios in you, right, which is the possession of the soul by the God. People have lost their soul, said Dr. Johnson, out of their body and turned hither and whither. Four days. words exactly describe the condition of society in the Hellenistic period. To recover their souls, some people ate their God or drank his blood. So these are ancient Egyptian ideas, which the Greeks would have considered completely weird, but which arose nevertheless in the centuries of the decline of classic Greek religion, and is looking for something to replace it. And this is an idea that gets out there. You see, it has to do with, with the notion of fear. Um, you can't take God away from me because he's right here. Get, up, get away from me. And the ultimate is I eat him, so then you really can't get away from me. Do you, do you understand? These are atavistic. These are, you know, deep, sort of amyl-type attempts to say, I got it. Right? The ultimate union, from a certain point of view. Now, from the Jewish, this is all crazy, but don't, you know, make fun of someone else. We, we have our crazy Mishagasin, and this was theirs. So to recover their soul, some people ate their God and drank his blood, others swallowed his name, others sanctified themselves by wild dances. Um, at the same time, belief in immortality, soul, flesh, and life, the privilege okay. It was a common feature of these mystical cults to place a mediator between the devotee and the God whom one seeks. So in other words, in all these cults, you don't just talk to God, you talk to his local representative. Okay? You don't want to call India, you want to call a guy <laughs> who's right here, who can handle your computer problems right there. Men could not soar to the abstract Godhead direct. Those people felt you can't talk to God. See, people, the celestial fields with manifold spirits and demons, who would interpose their influence in his behalf if supplicated properly. In order to bring the deity nearer to the earth, the figure of man was projected onto the Godhead. And so for the first time, you find among the Greeks not a bunch of different little gods and the idea being there's something invisible above them, but even the invisible above them becomes identified with some material form, which hadn't been earlier in the Greek religion. It's interesting. Under the influence of the Egyptian worship of Isis and Osiris, the conception of primal man gained a footing of philosophy, distributed to all things, played an important role in the universe, and so on and so forth. True, I'll go into the bottom. True Hellenism, by its instinctive moderation, apprehended the difference between man and God. I say in the old Greek religion, you know, you have your Mount Olympus and all that, but that's not really, I don't want to use the word, it's not really the master of the universe, right? Uh, that they saw some invisible beyond beyond, which is true, but not anymore. So the gods were conceived in a human likeness among the old Greeks, a definite line of demarcation uh, between their world and human beings, but the megalomania and the, and the self-debasement of the Oriental were greater, and he goes on to make the case, which I won't bore you anymore, that um, 
more and more the notion of the incarnation of the divine uh, became popular. And all these things ultimately result in, uh, in Christianity. But that's what it is in its historical presentation. It emerged out of the environment that I just described. As you know, it also took a bunch of Jewish ideas and mushed them all together into particular chalant that it, that, it, that it developed into. And hence, you have this kind of, um, what shall I say, contradiction or paradox at the very core, which, to put it in dumb terms, uh, is the difference. Do you believe in one God or do you believe in three? You know, to, to dumb it down. And, and a Christian will say, you believe in one, but there's three also, you know, in a different way, and so forth. And the Jew will say, well, make up your mind, you know. But that's not the way that they see it. So I'm just trying to tell you where all this came from. Um, and the rise of Christianity, the whole Jesus business, starts in the year one, obviously. So right in the middle of the Roman period, the Greco-Roman period, when all these religious crises are at full flush. Okay. Now, the flawed filtering of Jewish concepts through pagan glasses is a key characteristic of what I'm talking about. In other words, the Jesus stories is refracted through Gentile reading and interpretation. Particularly the role of blood and the drinking of God's blood. So again, the early Christians and the founders of Christianity and the people who gave the big input into the way Christianity ultimately developed, this is not a seminar in which we have to say what was the original like and different the way it developed. We're only interested in the way it developed. And the way it developed is they took the Bible as they saw, the Septuagint, the, the Greek uh, translation of the Bible, and they saw, you know, God is angry about this, and he, he says, sprinkle the blood over here, and do the atonement over there, and have a carbon for this or that. And they imagined Judaism in their way, and they mixed it together with the ideas that I just described to you, and they produced the final brew of what has come to be known as Christianity. Right? Um, particularly, as I said before, in matters of questions of blood that we're concerned with today, or drinking of blood. Complicating all this is, of course, the New Testament tale of the Last Supper, where Jesus goes to the Seder before he's killed. Right? And he gave out pieces of, pieces of matzah and wine. And he says, eat my body and drink my blood. That's what it says. So I understand one can be a Maimonidean and say, well, this means real body and so forth. But I'm telling you the way they took it at that time, as you know. And the question raised in early Christianity, is this literal? Is it figurative? Many theological battles in Christianity were fought over this point. The main group that emerged by the time all the killing is over, uh, in the late Roman Empire and afterwards in medieval Europe, were the Catholics, or as we have come to call them, they used to call themselves by different names, who defined all this in a literalist fashion, although as a, as a mystical phenomenon. And to a Jew, of course, is one of the stranger parts, of, uh, maybe the strangest parts of Catholicism. I mean, not to them, but to, but, but to us. Which is that the core religious ritual is the giving of the wafer and the wine, which like in the original story of Jesus means you are eating my body and you are drinking my blood. And that's not to be understood as just a marshal in Catholicism and many other Christian groups. It really happens. And if you tell me, well, but it's not your body, it's a piece. It's a wafer. Transubstantiation, they call it. Right? This is a doctrine, and a key and arch doctrine, one of the sacraments, one of the most important doctrines of Christianity. It's not to be laughed at, they said. It's not to be, I know it looks funny, but it's not funny. And it's actually of the highest mystical importance, and it becomes one of the core principles of the Roman Catholic Church, and it remains so till this day. 
And even when the Protestants broke away, as they did in the 1500s, they simply said, it's not literal, but it's nevertheless, ex- but we still keep it up. Many of the Protestant groups do, many don't. The Episcopalians do. I mean, I don't want to give you a whole long thing. But uh, even if you see it figuratively, imagine an educated Episcopal. I'll give an example, George, President Bush. Right? I mean, the father, the old man. So he says, uh, he's, he's an educated guy, went to Yale, right? And he's an Episcopalian. So, and then, and then, so he'll say like this, he says, what are you doing? He says, I'm figuratively eating the body of Jesus and figuratively drinking the blood. Isn't that a little weird? Not to them. Okay? So go with this basic idea. And again, it's called transubstantiation. A huge theology arose around this with Jesus as the carbon Pesach, because after all, the original meal happens, what they call the Last Supper, which is a Pesach. Um, do recall, by the way, and I'm trying to show you a little bit of how this emerged, that in the Old Testament, in the Torah, it does talk about blood on Passover in salvific terms, doesn't it? Remember, it says like this, you'll put the blood on the door and the angel of death will jump over it. You're familiar. Now you'll say, that's different. I understand, but you see how these Goyim interpreted it. Do you understand what I'm saying? You see how they took that and then refracted it in and produced their own kind of version. So a Jew will immediately say like this, why are you taking this idea and, you know, rechanging it? And they say, no, no, we got the right interpretation. You have the wrong interpretation. Okay? So there you have it. Um, but do recall the important role of blood in the original excess from Egypt. Okay? Now, to Jews, the whole thing seemed not only ridiculous, but a matter of Jewish, uh, excuse me, of Gentile miscomprehension of Jewish ritual. Okay? So, if I were to try to imitate, I don't know, Chinese religious, I'd probably get it wrong also. And uh, that's not the way they wanted to say it. They said, no, we have it right, and you guys have it wrong. And of course, the Jews originally said like this, how can we have it wrong? We've been doing it forever. Well, you've been doing it, but you've been doing it wrong. (laughs) Okay, you don't know your own thing. And this is a key to today. It's a key theological element in Christianity that the Jews have this old tradition, but they've gotten it wrong from day one. And it is notions such as what I just told you that led, among other things, recently to the Presbyterians damning Israel. You know what I'm talking about. You read the papers. And that's because even the mainline Protestant groups, like the Presbyterians and others, Methodists, they're not anti-Semitic, but they're anti-Judaic, and, they're, and, and they're admittedly so. You get it? In other words, most people aren't interested usually in what I'm talking about today. I'm doing this for a very specific reason for this lecture series. But Jews, and other, who gets into all this Christian business? But they're Christians. They do get into that business. And if you know what they hold as their official shita, they are extremely anti-Judaic. And the practical result of this is uh, there shouldn't be a state of Israel. Okay? In other words, I'm talking about people who don't say go out and shoot Jew- Jews because they're not like that at all. But in theological sense, you should destroy Israel or whatever because the Jews are not the ones who are entitled to the Holy Land. Uh, the Christians are. And they'll let the Muslims have it for now. But you know, the Christians are. You follow? And all the promises in the Old Testament really apply to the Christians. They, they take that kind of stuff very seriously. You wouldn't know it because none of us engage in theological discussions with Presbyterians and Lutherans and all those other guys to the degree you have anything to do with them. You deal with them on a secular basis, so that's fine. Um, and secularly, they're not out to hurt anybody, not in America, thank God. But uh, if you ever get down to actual discussions and theological conversations, uh, you would probably be pretty uh, disturbed and surprised at what they think. 
Right? So you have a nice educated person, a man or a woman, and yet at the theological level, it viciously anti-Judaic. Okay, fine. Ordinarily, who cares about this? But the Jews came to live under Christendom, didn't they? When the Middle Ages arose, the Jews from then till today end up living in Christian countries, and particularly for a thousand years in the Middle Ages, at a time when the church would fiercely reject the Catholic Church, fiercely reject any type of Jewish criticism as a heresy punishable by death if one himself was not a born Jew. In other words, in the Catholic religion, they're very into heresies. That means they want to define, in a way that Judaism doesn't, uh, the precise doctrine you have to believe in. And any deviation from this doctrine to the right or the left will land you in hell. Right? Now, the Jewish religion, for a variety of reasons, never developed that way. We are OCD on practice. Okay? You know, do you do, you do the right hand, do you do the left hand? Is the asterisk like this? Is it like that? Uh, basis and all the beyondif is if the egg is born this day, can you do the first egg? So a non-Jew, so I guess the Jews are crazy, right? You know, they care about the size or the, is, it a, is it a kazayas? You know, oh, we're, we're OCD on that. But we're not OCD on theology. Some of us are, but overall, the Jewish people have never been OCD on theology. We've never had a, had a church, right? That was destroyed long ago. And there's never been any attempt, as far as we can tell, historically, to impose a single a set of theological doctrines because it was not even possible. And so the Jews are very non-OCD on, uh, on theology. You know, some held like the Rambam, and some held that he's totally wrong. Some held like this opinion in the Gemara, and some he's totally wrong. Uh, some hold today, I see Rabbi Oversee, some hold that Zionism is okay with the Torah, some people it's not okay, you know, there's different opinions out there. And you can't force anybody to have any particular sort of thing. We only strive for uniformity to the degree that, that we can when it comes to practice. And we don't have that either, but we have a broad range. At least we're still holding by the fact that nobody in the Orthodox world holds that you can light a match on Saturday or eat a ham sandwich, as I always like to say. But outside of that, there's a lot of variation. Um, the Christian religion developed differently, especially the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. And they wanted very, very precise definitions of what the faith teaches. And any deviation from that was considered the worst sin, the worst sin, and one of the heresies, not the only one, there are many of them, is Judaism. Now, they don't mean what you think it means. They don't mean the Jewish religion. They mean a guy, <laughs> a Christian, who offers Jewish-like critiques of Christian theology and practice. That's a Chayav Misa. That's terrible. You get it? In other words, a Jew, obviously, is going to have problems with the church having uh, statues. Because the Jews are like that. The, this is what the Catholic Church said. The Jews have always been like that. They don't get it. But if a Catholic born in France or Spain says something like that, they say, well, you, yeah, you're infected by Jewish heresy. And therefore you get killed. And so any criticism of the Trinity, or in our case of transubstantiation, of the notion of the matzah, of the wafer and the blood becoming the body and blood, anything like that, if it's from the part of somebody who's not Jewish, would be considered um, a capital crime and beyond, <laughs> beyond that. By that I mean you burn in hell as well. The church had a conflicted attitude towards Jews after the Jews came to be totally under its power in the 4th century. Because as I said before, all this matters because Jews lived, and still continue to live, in Christian countries. Okay? Now things are more liberal, but for a long time they weren't. And the church literally did control, they had the physical power to control what happens to the Jews who live in there. 
The church had several philosophical alternatives of how to view the Jews. Positively, negatively, murderously, tolerantly. You know, King said like this, Jesus was a Jew, that shows the Jews not so bad. Or he said Jesus was killed by the Jews, that shows the Jews are bad. Okay? Uh, the Jews have the Old Testament that shows that they're good. Or the Jews have the Old Testament that shows that it means that they're bad. You can, you can spin it whatever way you want. You understand? Um, as the famous poet said, how odd of God to choose the Jews, you know? Like why, why would he, they couldn't understand that. You know, why, why a, a, a group that was as sick as the Jews, so they had to develop some way around it. After a lot of debate, the middle position emerged as a consensus position, which is the opinion of St. Augustine, okay? One of the very, very important, um, shall I say, theologians in early Christendom. And he basically says, as the expression goes now, as far as the Jews, you can let them survive, but don't let them thrive. Okay? And you understand what I mean by that. Okay? So they have to be second, third class citizens. They have to understand their low state for having killed Jesus and rejected him and this and that and the other. But, 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 this is what the part that the Jews are interested in. But you can't hurt them. You can't do physical. Okay? You can put all kind of pressure in the world on them to convert, but not physical. Isn't that interesting? And actually the Jews are entitled to physical protection, physical security. They're not entitled to be protected against sermons and people coming to the door and, you know, being bombarded with all kinds of messages and all that. But I can't put my finger on you. I can't lay my hand on you. I can't hurt you. Actually, this was the classic position of the Catholic Church. That's why the Catholic Church never had a Holocaust. If they wanted to, they could do it. They had the power. But that's not what their theology developed in. Okay? Now, for the first part of the Middle Ages, the first part of the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church was in this expansionist kind of role. Um, the Jews were for, few and far between, and they were not subject to a lot of attention. I mean, here's Charlemagne, and here's the Empire of Charlemagne. This is Charlemagne, one of the early, the first of the Holy Roman Emperors, the Catholic Emperors in the Middle Ages, not the Roman Emperors. And uh, look how big his kingdom was. It's France, it's a piece of Spain and Italy, and half of Germany. The areas that he took over in Germany, the Saxons particularly, were, um, what shall I say, pagans. And they worshiped trees and things like this. They're very famous. Charlemagne, I'll just give you one example, waged a whole lot of wars during his reign to crush, and he did, the Saxons, and force them into Christianity. He massacred 4,000 one day, the guys that wouldn't go along. He burned their trees that they worshipped, and uh, he was very tough, and he succeeded. Because Saxony, until today, is a Christian area. So I'm just giving you an example, just expand this all across Europe, and you'll understand that in the 500s, 600s, 700s, 800s, 900s, 1100s, even, even in the 1200s, the Catholic Church was concentrating on conquering this whole area and Christianizing it. After all, they might fall to the Muslims, that would not be good. So therefore, they wanted them all to come under the Christian or the Catholic Church. Now, this was good for the Jews in the short sense, because Jews are a tiny minority here and there. The main attention of the Catholic Church is for the big prize, and they did capture the big prize. They did spread Catholicism all across Europe, except in the eastern part where we had the Byzantines, where we had Greek Orthodox. But Christianity as a phenomenon spread all over Europe, even into Russia, as you know. And, and, and once they won over the Poles and the Russians, oh, they had a big you know, population, uh, which is what Christendom remains until today. Isn't that interesting? I'm talking about things that happened 1,500 years ago, and we're still living with it today. And so during these centuries, the Jews were not at the top of the agenda. They didn't pay a lot of attention to it. The Jews you know, think Christianity makes sense. It doesn't make sense. The Pope simply presided over a world in which the Jews, if they ever get out of line, you know, the locals will beat them up or something like that. But generally speaking, the Jews, in order to survive, had to get along with the different rulers, the prince, the duke, the duchess, 
And uh, life was lived in that kind of a fashion. So I'm simply mentioning this to say that we don't hear about blood libels and things like this until the 11-1200s. And this is the reason people were thinking about other things during those times. But by the 1100s, the 1000s and 1100s to be exact, uh, Europe had been conquered and Christianized, most of it. And Christendom was in a consolidation mode, which was not good for the Jews. Meaning once they conquered this whole area, then they took peoples who in the first generations, uh, we know this, if you ask a barbarian who was forced into Christianity, he says, who's Jesus? Oh, he's some powerful warlord, got a big army. And, you know, they didn't understand it all, but the Catholic Church was fine with that. They say, we'll get the next generation, or the next generation, little by little, they'll be consolidated and absorbed into the big package, which they were, okay? Now, once they go into a consolidation mode, they want to find out what everybody's really believing and ref you know, refine their theology, spread monasteries and churches all over the place, and really Christianize it, then the fact that you have a tiny minority of people who, for one reason or another, are the exception, became very much in the public view, and that was not good for the Jews because a minority always does better when they're out of the spotlight. Right? That's true till today. Right? You don't want to see Jews in the news. You see? It's always better when they're in, 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 in the spotlight. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Which is the richest uh, ethnic minority in America? The answer is the Greeks. You ever see them? No. But they, but they live out... No, no, no. This is true. But they live out wherever, and they live in huge things, but they're very smart to stay out of the news. Right? I remember Sarbanes, every time he ran, got together a couple of, of uh, Greek restaurant owners, they raised millions of dollars, he won all the elections. This was always uh, the, the papers talked about it. You understand? What, what, what Greeks? Huh? <laughs> you know, except Peter Angelos. You, know? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? It's a certain mode. If the Jews had the opportunity to do that, they would have done it. But of course, they look different, they talk different, they're very noticeably different. Well, they tried to elide that. We know, and I've told you before, in the time of Rashi, for example, in France, because Ashkenaz was France and Germany. In France, the Jews really tried to blend in. Uh, they didn't wear yarmulkes. They, 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 they shaved. Uh, they, you know, they walked around in Gentile clothing. Uh, they did, the, the Jews didn't even wear yarmulkes in the synagogue. Okay? They didn't wear yarmulkes when they had tefillin on, but they never yarmulkes. It's, it's, it's weird. Um, trying to you know, blend in as much as possible because of it potential anti-Semitism, I don't need to tell you, in light of what's going on in Paris these days, that France has never been exactly a foreign land to anti-Semitism. Okay? So this was how life was. But all of a sudden, if they're, if they're trying to consolidate and say everybody should be a Christian, not only a Christian, a good Christian, and you know, know all the catechism, know all the other rules of the church, so who's that family over there? And why is that girl different, and I never seen, and why didn't that go to church? And what really bothered them was the following. In medieval Christianity, you had a monolithic situation in which no group was allowed other than Catholics. You see? Now this is different in Islam, where they made exception for two groups, Christians, and to the Muslims it didn't matter what kind of Christian you are, so you had a lot of different Christians running around the Muslim areas, and to a limited extent you still do, although that's shrinking. So as you know, for example, in Egypt you've got the Coptics, and you've got the Nestorians, and of course you've got your Catholics and your Greek Orthodox, and in a Muslim environment, you know, they have a lot of different groups every day, and of course you got the Jews. But other than that, the Muslims formally are not supposed to let anybody in there. The Christians were not that um, tolerant, even though what I just described is not really tolerant. Right? The Christians are like, it's everyone has to be a Roman Catholic. If you're a kind of a Christian that's other than a Roman Catholic, you die, or you change, or you leave. Okay? Because the medieval model is we'd like everybody to be exactly like us. So, this was enforced. 
So he went to Germany and England and, you know, France and places like that. There are no Muslims. There are no Greek Orthodox Muslims. Everybody's Roman Catholic. And then you got this sprinkling of a small population of Jews who, how did they wing it that they got permission from the Pope and the others to live and operate in their lands with a certain privilege? You can't beat them up. They'll call the cops on you. Can't, uh, you know, destroy their property. They'll call the, the cops on you, the, the duke or the prince. This didn't sit well. Now, the big shots at the top, like the Pope and the kings and the princes, they all cut their deals with the Jews, so they understood what it's all about, which is economics. But the average person out there doesn't make anything out of this. All the average person says, look, everybody's got to go to church on Easter. So what's, how come these people don't do it? Everybody else you know, takes their hat off when they, pass, you know, when, they, when they pass the wave around through the street. How come these guys don't? And so forth. You understand? That's the bottom at a basic level. I would even go a little bit farther and say that the theory of St. Augustine in the Catholic Church is that the Jews, as I said before, can survive but not thrive. But the problem is the Jews did thrive because the Jews were good in business. And so Lemaissa, uh, the Ashkenazi Jews, for example, wherever they lived, certainly always had a wealthy element. Not all of them, obviously, but they always had wealthy. You always had your successful merchant, him or his wife. And then it really goes and in, 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 in bothers you in the jaw because these are the guys that killed Jesus and they should not even be allowed over here. Number one, they're allowed over here. And he's got a bigger house than I have. And my daughter is working for him as a maid. And what's that, what's that all about? You say, what's that all about? And the guy will go to church and he'll say, Father, I don't understand this. I thought these guys are bad. And what's the priest supposed to say? You know, well, the duke is getting 10% or something. You know, you know what's he supposed to say? Try to take you down to a realistic, everyday kind of a level and all this sort of thing. Um, but they were surviving and thriving, and this was a problem. Now, the rulers, as I said, were okay with this. Uh, but Catholic priests, especially at the local level, bitterly resented this situation, and they succeeded in poisoning the political environment. Here we have Agobard of Lyon, who was, in the, who was a bishop at the time of uh, Charlemagne's son. So Charlemagne's son was Louis Hachasset, Louis the Pious, the uh, Ludwig I of the Holy Roman Empire. Louis the Pious, for economic reasons, like Charlemagne, favored the Jews. It was strictly a, 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 an economic situation. Okay? They favored the Jews. There weren't many. And he's in Lyon, which is in southern France, and he's writing all these books in Latin that you can get online if you care to, how this is an anomaly and this is an offense. It's a chil Hashem from the Catholic point of view that everybody is along this. The, the emperor even appointed a minister of Jewish affairs. Can you believe it or not? That's how much he favored them. That is to say, in Louis the Pious' time, in the Holy Roman Empire, uh, if you made trouble for a Jew, the Jew didn't even go to the regular cops. He had a special office, a special prosecutor for Jewish affairs that answered to the emperor. Well, if you're Jewish, you think this is really cool. But if you're a Catholic, what do you think of it? That doesn't make any sense. Suppose I told you Obama set up something, said if you sue a Mexican, an immigrant, especially illegal, the federal government will go after you. You wouldn't like that. You see? Now, um, thus the classic unhealthy position, political condition of medieval Jews emerged. The rulers acquiescing because of economic reasons, and the broad public uh, kind of indifferent to it, but the clergy hating it and using its influence to poison the minds of the masses. That's the classic medieval model. Right? It ultimately results with the Jews getting kicked out of Europe. That's later in our story. But that is what happens. Okay? By the time you enter what's, what we call the Middle Ages, the Jews were kicked out of one country after another until they were kicked out of all of Europe except for Poland and Turkey. 
I mean, I can give you the years, you know. In 1290, they expelled from England. In 1304, 1394, they expelled from France. And as you know, in 1492, they kicked out of Spain. In 1497, from uh, Portugal. And then at this year and that year, they kicked out of this part of Germany and that part of Germany. By the time you get to 1500 or so, they're kicked out of 97% of Germany. Because a lot of little states that we'll discuss over here, and from most of Italy, and so on and so forth. We see, and, and they're kicked out of Holland and Belgium, and the, and the Scandinavians wouldn't let them in the first place, and the Hungarians eventually, and the time we kick, Magyas kicked them out, and, and um, Russia would never let them in. And so by the time you get to the, what we call the end of the Middle Ages, there's only one country that takes them, which is Poland, which is an unusual situation. So why are they kicked out of all the other places? Because what I just described to you, because the position of the Jews as the, the minority, especially the non-suffering minority, was just too much of variance and too much of an anomaly for them to, to have it. The Jews, in other words, are the only other that one encounters in medieval Europe. Right? Now, in the Middle Ages, others are routinely charged with, with, with witchcraft and are killed. The uh, records are full. I mean, as you know, even this country eventually did the Salem witchcraft. Imagine what they had in the old country, okay? And the historians that are interested in this particular subject, you'll see somebody looked at your field, and then a month later, you know, uh, you had a locust attack. He or she did it as a witch and, and kill him because you get arrested. And in the Middle Ages, they had this wonderful theory of legal torture. You understand? And that means once you get arrested, it's all over, baby, because they're going to torture you until the Easter Tove comes out and make you confess. <laughs> you understand? And, and they get destroyed. And so this was routine. So maybe the Jews are a bunch of witches. Let's go after them. No, the Catholic Church had defined the Jews as being non-witches. Isn't that funny? Part of St. Augustine and all the rest of it is the Jews are a bad race in this regard, in that regard, and so on and so forth. But it's an ancient sort of thing, and Jesus was a Jew. And so when you see them do these funny things, but Jesus used to do that stuff also. Maybe not all, maybe the Jews have come with a couple of Mishagasim along the way. But fundamentally speaking, this is what Jesus used to do. It's not witchcraft. It's different, but it's not witchcraft. And so you had the really anomalous situation of the Roman Catholic Church, which defines everything connected with religion in the Middle Ages, telling you the Jews are not witches. So then they can't get them on that. <laughs> you see? So, so, so what do you do? What are they? And the Jews, as I told you before, do not behave properly. They're too uppity. They're not behaving like marginalized, emotionally downtrodden weirdos. So what do you do in such a Christologically anomalous situation? Well, you come up with some kind of Judaistic witchcraft. That's what you come up with. You get what I'm saying? Now, it's not your typical witchcraft in which you look at something and it dies and you, know, you conjure up spirits all the rest of it. But a particular form of Judaistic witchcraft, not the laws themselves, but the Jews practice, and you can't get them for taking a lulav and esterig, which must have looked funny to somebody in England or whatever. Can't get them on that. The church has officially labeled it legitimate. But there are other Jewish practices out there which are not biblical laws. After all, remember, the Christians never heard of the Talmud, not in the Middle Ages. But these are extra practices that the Jews, sick dogs that they are, evolved on their own. And get them on those. But which practices? Christendom, is very, especially medieval Christendom, is all the countries of Europe, was very fideistic very focused on Amuno, very uncomfortable with ideological, especially rationalist challenges. Okay? The Catholic Church in the Middle Ages doesn't want to hear that. They don't want to hear rationalist challenges. By the high Middle Ages, the Middle Middle Ages, groups like the Cathars, the Albigensians, had arisen, which rejected the sacrament of transubstantiation. 
In other words, all through the Middle Ages, from time to time, individual people popped up to try to make a Protestantism of some kind or other, or some different form of Catholics, or challenge this or that aspect of it, and they were killed. Okay? The Cathars and the Albigensians, as they're called, in uh, the High Middle Ages, had a huge wars with the Catholic Church, and they were exterminated, okay? in France particularly, Simon de Montfort. And uh, that means that there were a million people, two million people, I don't know how many, in those days, that said, you know, this particular piece that the church is telling us is baloney, and that particular piece that the church is telling us is baloney, particularly the wafer and the wine, that this is a real thing. Um, it's the kind of thing that Martin Luther eventually did a couple hundred years later, but he got away with it. I'm talking about a time when they couldn't get away with it. The reason you couldn't get away, the Catholics would get you and burn you. And that's what they did to all these guys. And so, um, where am I going with this? The Catholic Church reacted by killing the heretics and reasserting the truth of substantiation. How do you reassert the truth? Well, you can get intellectuals like uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, who was a big anti-Semite, even though he borrowed a lot from the Rambam. You can get them to give, uh, what shall I say, intellectual arguments to prove that the fact that the wafer and the wine become the body and blood makes sense. That's basically what he's trying to do. And by the way, Thomas Aquinas is a hero to Catholics until today. But for the masses, the way you try to reinforce your theology is through Baba Mises. So hence the great rise of Baba Mises in the Middle Ages concerning the truths of substantiation. Oh, the wafer walks and it talks and was stabbed and it bleeds and cries out. I, I promise you. You understand? Uh, the blood does strange things. I heard it. It happened in the next town. How many people saw it? Oh, 100 people saw it. Where are they? They're not here right now, but there are 100 people saw it. You understand? In other words, Oilum Goilum. Okay? The masses are acid, but it's, but it's true. There's a famous tale that's told from Prague in the 1700s. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a Jonas and Amish was walking down the street, and a Catholic priest said to him, he says, How can you Jews be right? It's such a small minority. Everybody's wrong, and you're right. Right? It's such a tiny group. That's very arrogant. Everybody's wrong, and you're right. And he said, Watch this. And they were in the marketplace of Prague. It's a famous story. He saw this. Look, it's a flying elephant. And everybody looked up. He said, Oilum Goilum. You know, the masses are asses. You do, 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 because the fact that a lot of people believe something does not mean it's true. I started this talk tonight by asking you the question, unfortunately, who did 9-11? The masses are asses. They'll, 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 they'll buy it up. Okay? Now, in this cultural environment, priests, especially local priests, were tempted to create stories which sounded true to the primitive mind and which served to expose the perfidy of the Jews, but of course, always ends a happy ending, but the ultimate triumph of Jesus over there. Okay? Uh, the first place this occurred, right? no, unfortunately, I'm going to have a lot of them, but I'm, not, I'm going to do the first ones tonight. He says, the first place it occurred was in Norman, England. Isn't that interesting? You say, oh, England is a, is a liberal country. Not in the time of uh, William the Conqueror. Okay? England, I'm sure many of us know, 1066 Battle of Hastings. Uh, used to be Saxon country, then taken over by the Normans. Remember Ivanhoe? Everybody's read Ivanhoe. So uh, in that era, the Normans were French, right, from Normandy, and they, uh, under the leader uh, who came to be called William the Conqueror by the British historians, in his lifetime he was called William the Bastard. Uh, and not because he was not a nice guy, but because he was illegitimate. Okay? He was also a bastard. <laughs> right? uh, and William... Uh, as you know, crossed over from Normandy and literally conquered England by blood and you know, fire and sword. By fire and sword. They, 
they conquered and raped England. This is, this is English history. And William the Conqueror, being a typical French nobleman, brought over a bunch of Jews with him to handle the finances. You get it? The money lenders. So here's a classic situation a Jew where he comes in with the conqueror, he's trying to you know, maneuver here and there, and you have a very difficult situation because you know, the Normans are the overlords that build castles everywhere, the Saxons are the underdogs that are dominated by the overlords, and who's the one collecting the rents? The Jew. You know, who's the one lending money to these terrible conquerors and pillagers and rapists? The Jew, and so forth. That's why or Sir Walter Scott actually did a favor by portraying Isaac of York and Rebecca in a nice way. This was a shocking thing to English sensibilities when Ivanhoe came out in the early 1800s, you understand? Classically, you always think of these Jews as something very, very bad. And so, the result was that um, it's not surprising, really, that a story of this type, the first of these stories, would pop up in the 1100s in early Norman England, if I can use that term. Um, and, the most fa and, and the famous uh, case is called William of Norwich. Right? Norwich is, you know, in, in Kent over there, in the facing France. And uh, there's a boy born in, in, in February 2nd, 1132, to a local Anglo-Saxon cu couple, Winston and Elviva. And these are Saxons. It's very interesting. You know, that never happens to, to Normans. He was apprenticed to a skinner, a tanner of hides, who often was dealing with local Jews, which is kind of interesting. Because this is had a Jewish role in the economy. You know, this guy's a farmer, the Jews buy the crop and sells it somewhere. This guy's got his hides and, and skins, and this guy sells it somewhere, you know? And uh, shortly before his murder, this is how the story goes, William's mother was approached by a man who claimed to be a cook working for the Archdeacon of Norwich. He offered William a job in the Archdeacon's kitchens. So here's a poor boy who offered a job working in the kitchens. William's mother was placed, paid three shillings to let him go, he later visited his aunt and accompanied this man. His aunt was apparently suspicious and asked her daughter to follow them after they left. They were seen entering the house of a local Jew. This was the last time William was seen alive. It was the Tuesday before Easter. How do you know this is true? That's what they say. What I'm talking about was never established in a court. But that's what the guys said, and you'll see what I mean in a minute. On Easter Sunday, the 12-year-old boy William's body was found in Mousehold Heath, part of Thorpe Wood outside Norwich. Dead body. A local nun saw the body, but didn't initially contact anyone. A forester named Henry of the Sprouston came across it. He noticed that injuries which suggested a violent death, and the fact that the boy appeared to be gagged with a certain teasel. William was wearing a jacket and shoes. After consultation with the priest, it was decided to bury the kid on Easter Monday. In the meanwhile, local people came to look at it, and William was recognized. They said, oh, we know who this boy is. The body was then buried at the murder site. The following day, members of the family, one of whom was a priest, arrived to confirm the identity of the body, the exhumed it, and then reburied it with a proper ceremony. Okay. The family of the child appeared to have quickly blamed the local Jews for the crime, and they demanded justice from the local ecclesiastical court. Ah, so here we have the funny world of the Middle Ages, which... Uh, you have competing law systems. You've got lawyers in America who are used to an American way, which is there's only one law here. It's the American, the civil, the, 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 the secular law. There is no other law system over here. Right? That's what you've got to operate in. Not that they have any power. I mean, in other words, no other law system in America has power except the one of the United States government and the states and the local jurisdictions. But in the Middle Ages, it wasn't like that. The king had his courts. The um, Catholic Church had their courts, what they call ecclesiastical courts. 
Sometimes the local, uh, what shall I say, the nobles had their courts, and it was a competition where the cases would be tried. And they had different systems of law which they thought are the right way to go in the Middle Ages, which seemed us, to us strange. In America, you got one Supreme Court with one federal law and one this and that and the other. Okay? True, at the state level, you have some competing systems of law, but generally speaking, it's pretty much the same. In the Middle Ages, you had uh, Roman law, uh, you had customary law, you have tribal law, uh, you have royal laws, uh, and the court is sort of like dealer's choice, which, which one are you going to apply in this case or that case. It's very different than what we're used to today. I'm well aware of that. And in this case, in Norwich, the story is told that they said, I guess, we want to try you in the Catholic Church court. And the Jews said, I guess, no way. <laughs> okay? I want to go in the king's court. You see? Um, how's it go over here? Members of the Jewish community were asked to attend the court and to submit to a trial by ordeal. Oh, now you know the way they didn't want to go to the Catholic court. <laughs> trial by ordeal, you'll see in a minute. Uh, we, we tie you up, we dump you in the river. If you come out, you're innocent. Okay? Or if you walk on hot coals and not get burned, you're innocent. This is what they call the, the, this is the Catholic Church used at the stand of evidence. Um, the king's court, and I know I are lawyers in this, office, in this uh, room, and the lawyers will tell you that Anglo-Saxon law goes back to the time I'm speaking about. It's literally old Anglo-Saxon law, in which it evolved over periods, but the kings of England came to say, by this time, they said, we've got to have some evidence. You know, falling into a river tied up in a sack is not called evidence. You see? And so the local sheriff, John DeChesney, advised them that the ecclesiastical court had no jurisdiction over them because they weren't Christians. Isn't that interesting? So they don't accuse the Jews of doing this, but the Jews, the sheriff told the Jews, so you don't have to go to them, you go to the king's court. He then took the Jews into protection in the castle. After the situation had calmed down, they returned to their homes, and that was the end of it. This would revive two years later when a member of the Jewish community was murdered in an unrelated instant, incident. King Stephen agreed to look into the matter, but then let, uh, uh, decided to let it drop. Which means that when a local Jew was killed, it seems like he was killed by some local guy who said, the Jews got away with killing this boy, I'm going to kill this guy. And the king of England said like this, he said, let this go, don't reopen it, you know, what do you, what, what, what do you make in trouble for yourself? And that was the end of that. In the meanwhile, his body was moved to a monk cemetery, some of the local clergy tried to create a, a cult around him as a, a martyr. There's no ev evidence that the original uh, accusations against the Jews uh, implied that the murder was related to ritual activity of any kind, but as it developed, so did the story of how and why he was killed. In other words, originally, so the Jews killed him, or a Jew killed him, or something, or at least that's what I heard. Of course, they couldn't prove it, they had no evidence whatsoever. But, you know, not having evidence doesn't mean that, no, no, not evidence doesn't mean it didn't happen. You see? Uh, but you can't convict somebody of that. So, you see what I'm saying? Little by little, stories are going to have a life of their own. Now, the trouble in this particular case is that a, uh, a priest, a new guy, moved in the area about two years later, Thomas of Monmouth. He arrived around 1150. Uh, he decided to investigate the murder by interviewing surviving witnesses. Thus, he becomes uh, obsessed with this case because he said, we can turn it into a saint. And I don't want to be over-cynical and say it like this, if we have a saint's grace, we can make a lot of money, but, uh, you know, that was there. He also spoke to people identified as converted Jews, who provided him with supposed, supposed inside info about events within the Jewish community, he wrote up the whole account of the crime in a book called The Life and Miracles of St. William of Norwich. Not that he was a saint. But if this book is accepted by the church, maybe he'll become a saint. As I told you before, he becomes a saint. We're in the money. Okay, he becomes a pilgrimage site. One convert, now, so the point I'm trying to get across is everything that I just told you and everything we know about the case 
comes from a book that a Catholic priest wrote about five, six years after it happened, based on the interviews that he did, and you're getting his version of the events. Okay. Um, one convert, he says, called Theobald of Cambridge, told Thomas that there was a written prophecy which stated that the Jews would regain control of Israel if they sacrificed a Christian child every year. That's what the guy told me. Every year, Jewish leaders met in Narbonne to decide who would be asked to perform the sacrifice. See, here we are in the 1100s. You have the protocols of the elders of Zion, a version of it. Right? The Jews get together in Narbonne, which is in southern France, far away, near the Riviera, and they assign which country, which Jewish community is going to kill the Christian for that year. And this is all part of the plot to reestablish the state of Israel. You get it? Now, there are many Christians today, I want to tell you, so that read this and believe it. So um, uh, keep that in mind. In 1144, according to this version, the year he was killed, this boy, the Jews of Norwich were handed this commission by the High Jewish Council. According to Thomas, the man who claimed to be a cook had been employed to entice William into the house where the sacrifice wouldn't occur. They would check them. William was initially treated well, but then was bound, gagged, and suspended in a cruciform position in a room where he was tortured and murdered in a manner imitating the crucifixion of Jesus. Jews lacerated heads with thorns and pierced his hide. His body was then dumped into the nearby woods. That's what he heard. Um, he supports this claim by saying that one converted Jew told him that there was an argument over how to dispose of the body. He says a Christian servant woman glimpsed the child through a chink in the door. Another man said to confess on his deathbed after the events that he saw a, a group of Jews transporting a body on a horse in the woods. So, <laughs> you understand the quality of this evidence, but does it matter? What I mean by that is, this obviously got legs and took off and spread and you know how it goes? It grows and gets better and gorier in the, in the retelling. And all of a sudden we have chimerical anti-Semitism. Right? I heard from this guy who said this, that did this, and there's a national, and the Jews get together every year, and so on and so forth. And so, as I told you at the beginning of tonight, don't tell me, he said, this is Narish guy. This is Baba I says, how can I someone believe this, especially from hearsay, but tell hearsay, and, you know, the whole thing is crazy. Don't say that. Not if you're living in Europe in the 11, 1200s. Okay? I mean, consider the nature of what I said. Now, I want to point out something. In England, there was law and order. And as you just saw, there was a real sheriff. And so nothing happened to the Jews as a result of what I just described. Right? Now, if they end up in a Catholic court, it would be different stories you'll see in a moment. It so happened that at the time, time under King Stephen, and later under King Henry II, and so forth, there was the king's law. Um, many of you have seen Beckett the movie and read the book. This was the Machot. So in the book and in the movie, they make Beckett look like the hero because he was eventually killed by King Henry's uh, knights, which is too murdered in the, uh, how's it go, murder in the uh, cathedral and, and all that, all of which is true. But I can tell you one thing, uh, this was a victory against, in other words, from our point of view today, Henry was the right one and Beckett was the wrong one. So Beckett wanted, you know, the Catholic Church should control more and more of the law and do more of these trial by ordeals. They don't show you that in the movies. <laughs> you understand? Uh, Henry was the one who actually founded the modern Anglo-Saxon law, if you know your legal history, and uh, he invented trial by juries and things like this in, in his reign, and even though he was a character and a half, but nevertheless, um, he wanted to the degree he can get it, justice. And when I say justice, there should be a trial, there should be two lawyers, there should be evidence, the jury should hear it, and so on and so forth. Okay? Now, 
But this led to the spread of rumors around Europe that Jews do this sort of thing. And the result was an incident in Blois in central France in 1171. Okay? Now Blois is uh, not too far south of Paris, near Orléans. And uh, Blois, as you would say over here. And uh, the Jews in France, at the time of Talmud, 1170s, were doing generally okay. This is the period of balitosis, which means the Jewish culture, as Jewish culture was flourishing on the one hand, Torah culture, as it was flourishing on the one hand, and economically, the Jews were doing well in France in the 1100s, before uh, 1189, when the bad king took over. And um, there were problems from time to time. But overall, it was a manageable sort of a problem, as I would say. Uh, Rabbi Tom, who was the leading rabbi in France, uh, was beaten up in 1146. Um, and this gives you a, 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 a feeling of what life could be like. He was a multimillionaire. He was a very wealthy uh, moneylender, as we say. I think the term today is financier and private banker. <laughs> Those days, they used the old term, money lender. And uh, I'll read you very shortly uh, a famous Hebrew um, passage. Yeah, it's up there, where it says, Yantav Sheni Shal Shavuos, Nesu Atoim, Meret Sarfas El Ramaru, on the second day of Shavuos, a bunch of crusader types uh, went to Ramaru, that's a small town where Rabbeinu Tom lived. Uboba based Rabbeinu Yaakov Sheikhia, and they busted into his house. And they took all of his wealth, and they tore up his household Sefer Torah in front of his face. And they grabbed him, and took him to the field, and they started speaking harshly about his religion. And they were planning to kill him. And they whacked him five times on his head. Because they said, You're the leading rabbi, the leading Jew in France, which was true. Therefore, you're the one we should take vengeance for the killing of Jesus. Tali, the crucified one. Since it says in the New Testament that Jesus was banged over the head five times, we're going to do it to you in revenge. And his pure soul was almost expired. Maybe he was three quarters dead. But God intervened. God obviously had pity on the Torah that Rabbi Tam expounded. And God made it that a knight, right, a Christian knight, a French knight, happened to be riding, coincidentally, into that field, by great Rabbeinu, right, and uh, what's it called? He called, either it means that uh, Tom called him help, or he, he saw, or he saw the rabbi, and he said, Rabbeinu, because being a knight, he's a member of the upper class, so he deals with him financially. And by and basically, Rabbeinu Tom said, uh, because in the Middle Ages, you can't get a, a non-Jew to do a favor for you without bribing him. That's already a madrego, that they'll accept that to help you. And so he says, if you save my life from these guys, I'll give you a horse worth five so, uh, golden um, uh, dinars. And so the knight went, he spoke to the ruffians, and he quieted it down by words, basically saying, leave this guy with me, and I'll, I'll, I will talk into him into converting now, he didn't mean it, but he's trying to say it to get him away from these bad guys. <laughs> I'm sure we'll be able to persuade him. And if he doesn't listen, I'll give him to you tomorrow. He didn't mean it, but he just told you do anything, get rid of a mom. The co also, they agreed. And so, therefore, the time was pushed away, meaning that it didn't happen. 
through this mercy, uh, this is what God did to the Marbis Torah of his generation. So I'm just trying to tell you something, 1146, and life is rough sometimes. And if we didn't know this particular story, because it happens to be in a frame of a bonus history book, if we didn't know, we, 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 for all I know, Rashi was beat up sometime or other. We don't know everything that happened in those days. So you understand, life was difficult, but having said what I just said, this was the exception, not the rule, and overall the Jews of France were economically doing quite well. Um, paid a lot of taxes, but doing quite well. The um, story reflects a fundamental sociological and economic reality, which is the Jew, which is brought out in story form here, which is the Jew depends on the nobles. You get it? If you leave it to the masses, they'll kill you. They'll, they'll destroy in a second. They're animals. But the nobles and the rulers, they're friends with the Jews, not friends with the Jews, but you know what I'm saying. They have a relationship with them and they'll intervene. Um, now, then comes, 1171, the incident of Blois. Okay? Here, the city, uh, where is it? Here's Paris, oh, there, there you go, right? So it's right smack in the middle of France. Um, not too far from Paris, I say, southwest. And uh, here we come across a fascinating figure from yesterday that we don't know enough about. This remarkable woman called Pulsalina of Blois, Jewish. The Ashkenazic Jews usually have Geisha names. Isn't that interesting? You look at Rashi's daughters, and uh, I remember one was, uh, they had the Balassies, and the other, the, uh, and her husband was Josebel. Uh, you think of Jewish people called David and Shlomo and all the rest of it, you know? They had uh, the, the Christian names. And Pulsalina, of course, means uh, beauty, isn't it? Pul Pusel is a virgin, and uh, Pulsalina is, is beautiful. So probably her Hebrew name was Yaffa or something like that. Uh, <coughs> But she is one of the people that I described a couple years ago, if you remember it, the Ashkenazi superwomen of the 11-1200s, the 10-11-1200s. And what do I mean by that? Uh, you had this very remarkable phenomenon in Ashkenaz, not elsewhere as far as we know, where in, the, uh, in this area, in France and in, in Germany, especially in France, where... For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.